Good morning. I'm going to be reading from 1 John chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 18. In the Pew, Bi- in the Pew Bibles, that's on page um, 1021. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be complained that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. It's the best part of the sermon right there every week, the scripture reading. Thank you, Melody. Well, a little more than 10 years ago, my little family moved from Greenville, South Carolina to a neighborhood in Northeast Philadelphia. Since then, uh, our family has grown by two kids, two dogs, and now 14 puppies, which is a story for another time. Track me down afterwards. I'll tell you all about that. Uh, Since then, I've lost some things too. I have uh, one less tooth that I got extracted earlier this week, so whatever doesn't make sense today, you can blame that on the pain meds. Um, The move up here was kind of a culture shock for our family, as you might imagine. We had to learn what wooder was, what a crick is, what down the shore means, uh, and that the plural of you isn't y'all, but yous. Yeah, that's right. So much to learn and adjust to in our move north. Uh, One of the other families in the church that we were in at that time took pity on us and invited us over to their house for like a good home-cooked meal. They wanted us to to make us feel at home in a place that felt anything but like home. If you know anything about the South, they're known for at least two things, good fried foods and good sweet tea. Washing it down with good sweet tea. Well, my good friend Greg, some of you know him, Greg Dietrich, he whipped up some fresh sweet tea for us. Very kind gesture of him. And Miriam was the first to sip the stuff. And it was the worst sweet tea that she had ever had. And I kid you not, right in front of our hosts, she stood up from the table, walked over to the sink in the kitchen, and spit the whole mouthful out. Now, you all know Miriam, sweet little Miriam. How could she have the audacity to do such a thing like that in a guest house, nonetheless? I'll tell you how. Greg didn't sweeten the tea with sugar. He sweetened it with salt. (laughs) Accidentally, obviously. Uh, Miriam experienced the the world's first salt tea. And let me tell you, it is no bueno, all right? Uh, There were no warning signs, though, for her. Sugar and salt looked nearly identical. 
The only way to know whether or not it was legit sweet tea was to taste it. It looked like sweet tea. It smelled like sweet tea. It even sounded like sweet tea, mixing up with the ice cubes in that glass. But it wasn't sweet tea. It was salt tea, and it was an imposter. Well, throughout this letter, John has been trying to help us distinguish between imposter faith and real faith. And sometimes it can be hard to tell the difference. It's the doctrine we believe and confess that makes all the difference. The doctrine we believe and confess that makes all the difference between imposter faith and true faith. Now, maybe the idea, even the mere mention of doctrine, makes you want to yawn. I don't know. Maybe this laundry list of doctrine that Melody just read for us seems irrelevant to your real day-to-day life. But be careful. There is a whole lot at stake for each of us in here this morning. One author frames it really well, I think. He says, it is a terrible and terrifying thing to know what you want to be and then realize you're the only one standing in your way. To want with every fiber of your soul to be someone different to escape the you you've made of yourself, only to fall back into the self that you hate over and over and over again. After the thrill of independence and experiments and self-actualization, drinking your so-called potential for being to the dregs when the exhaustion starts to set in and then eventually morphs into a kind of self-disgust, you can reach a point where you know you want a different life but are enchained to the one that you've made. None of us set out for this. None of us want this. We don't want a fraudulent faith or a fruitless life. But without the stuff of this doctrine today that we're going to work through, this is where we will inevitably end up. Exhausted and disappointed pseudo-self-saviors. So don't shrug off doctrine this morning. It is the very thing that unshackles you from a wasted life. Plug in with me for a few minutes. In this letter... John is helping us distinguish true faith from fraudulent faith. And he's doing this with a series of tests, pass or fail kinds of tests. A moral test, a social test, and then this morning, a doctrinal test. We've covered these first two tests already. Test one, the moral test. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. So ask yourself, do you do your best to do what God has called you to do? If so, your faith may be legitimate, and you could advance to the next test. Test two, relational test. We dealt with this a few weeks ago, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness. So ask yourself, do you do your best to treat God's people in a loving way? If so, your faith may be legitimate, and you could advance to the next test. And so today we move on to the third test. It's a doctrinal test. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So ask yourself, do you believe all the scriptures teach about Jesus? Do you really actually believe what they teach about Jesus? The purpose of John in this letter was a written response to Christians who were bailing on the faith. They were actually demonstrating that they were never the real thing, that they were failing these tests. Oh, they might have looked like it, They might have smelled like it, sounded like it, but once you gave them a taste, the truth was revealed. They had broken away from the church, and they had started doing their own thing. You can see that in our text for today. Look down at verse 19. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
So I imagine this departure of this group of people left the remaining people feeling a little bit disconcerted, confused, conflicted, maybe vulnerable a little bit. Like if a large number of us was suddenly gone, we hive, a large number of us hived off and left and were, weren't here next Sunday or any of the following Sundays after that because of some kind of doctrinal disagreement, you might wonder if you'd miss something important. You might feel a little bit concerned. You probably ask yourself, well, is what I believe true? How do I know? So John wanted to help this church make sense of all of that and to give them sort of like a gravitational center so that they would not leave the orbit of orthodoxy. That's what 1 John is all about. John's not concerned about whether he's offensive or not. He's concerned about the truth. He would rather offend his readers into heaven than flatter them into hell. Doctrine mattered deeply to John, and it should matter deeply to us, Trinity. At Trinity, you should know that we would rather be divided by truth than united by error. Divided by truth is greater than being united by error. It may not initially feel as loving. It may not feel as good. Or it may not seem as welcoming to act this way. I understand that. But in the end, you have to believe, Christian, that it is the absolute most loving thing you can do for any human being ever. Holding to the truth of this book, or what John calls there in verse 24, that which we heard from the beginning, holding to this is the most loving thing you can do for the world. This isn't easy. I admit it, even as a pastor, but it is something that we should make plans to hold to no matter what comes our way. And let's try to dispense with the notion that we need to be embarrassed by this. We need not be embarrassed by this. No, church, we have the truth. <laughs> we have the hope. We have the victory that overcomes the world. And whether or not they look like it, people are desperate for this good news. Whether or not they admit it, they want it, and they need it. John Tyson says, people are desperate. The secular story cannot meet the longings of the human heart. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. The very thing you are ashamed of as a Christian is the very thing someone is seeking. Last weekend, I was watching my Florida Gators get stomped, which is a usual occurrence on Saturday afternoons now. We won yesterday. Um, and like normal, when the Gators are losing, especially when they're losing, I'm having a conversation with my TV, which is not weird at all. Um, and at some point, when things got really rough, I just shouted out, this is just embarrassing. And so my 12-year-old, Eden, whom I'm now going to owe a dollar because I mentioned her name, um, my 12-year-old from the other room was like, Daddy, just don't let anyone know that you're cheering for Florida. Then it won't be embarrassing. <laughs> if only it were that simple. It probably is. I don't know. But I think this is how some of us think about Jesus. Just don't let anyone know you're cheering for him. Then you won't be embarrassed. But John here is strongly opposed to this. We need to get used to the idea that in the end, doctrine does divide. And that's okay because we are on the creator's side, the right side, the winning side. And it's not just that it's the winning side. It is a, it's that it is the side that is good for the world. Every last human being needs life-saving doctrine. One of the reasons this is so important, according to John here, is that there's too much urgency to be worried about being embarrassed. 
This is what John wants us to see first there in verse 18. Urgency is critical. Look at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. Now, what does this mean? The last hour? I did some quick math this week. It's been almost 18 million hours since John penned those words initially. What does he mean, last hour? I think John is speaking more theologically than he is chronologically. Theologically versus chronologically. The last hour is a reference between the two comings of Jesus. His past incarnation and in his future return. The first coming of Christ inaugurated a new age, a new age that John calls here the last hour. So John, when he wrote this, he was in the last hour. And so are we. It's just the name of the age between the two comings of Jesus. I think for most of us, probably, the study of the end times, eschatology, as it were, has been something of a fascination, especially a decade or two ago. I mean, maybe you've spent many hours, like I did as a teenager, reading about Buck Williams in the Left Behind series, right? I was feverishly trying to find out how it's all going to end for Buck and then for me too. But I don't think that's John's emphasis here on the last hour, on the end times. Studying the end times has a much more pastoral function in our lives. It teaches us to interpret the difficulties of this day by keeping an eye on the last day. Keeping an eye on the last day creates urgency for the indifferent among us. It dispels fear for the believer, and it fuels spiritual energy to keep on going. So if you are indifferent this morning, not a believer at all, or kind of just call yourself a Christian, but kind of indifferent to the faith, or if you're fearful about what's happening in our world right now, or if you're just plain old tired, knowing it's the last hour ought to give you a spiritual boost. So let's allow this phrase to do that for us today. Allow it to inject some urgency into your faith life and to provide some comfort about the next life. The, the realization that we are in the last hour ought to put a little, like a little pep in our step. For some of us, it should put a little fear in our hearts. Are we the real thing? Or have we just been posing as the real thing? Does it matter if we're the real thing or not? Absolutely. It absolutely matters. Look at what's at stake. Look at verse 25. And this is the promise. This is what's at stake that he made to us. Eternal life. Eternal life in God's presence for believers. Eternal death under God's wrath for the posers. Perk your ears up, everyone. There's a lot at stake for your eternal welfare. How long will this hour last? No one knows. This is what should spark urgency in our hearts. Peter tells us that God's measuring of time is nothing like ours. Look at this from 2 Peter 3. He says, but do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So God's clock stretches a lot longer than our clocks. A thousand years for us is like a day for God. And yet the urgency is still, still turned all the way up to high here for Peter. He continues, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, so what does this tell us? It tells us that God is sort of like above time, as it were. But when he does finally enter time again, 
it will surprise everyone like a thief in the night. And that when that surprise comes, it will be seen as catastrophic by unbelievers. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. I could go on with a bunch of other texts that kind of flesh the same reality out. No one knows when the final second will tick in this final hour. So we should have urgency about our beliefs and actions now. And right here we find John describing a particular characteristic of this last hour. Look at verse 18. He says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. I probably won't answer all of your burning questions about Antichrist this morning. Some of y'all showed up today just for this. I know you. I don't know his name. I don't know his social security number. I don't know his country of origin. I don't know. And I don't think that's John's focus here. There will be other texts in Daniel and Revelation that will hit eventually that will, that will drill down a little bit more into this. But today, that's not John's focus. Sorry. If you need to pick up and leave now, that's fine. Please don't. Um, I do kind of wonder if John here is thinking back to some of the teachings of Jesus that he sat under. For instance, this is Matthew 24, uh, where Jesus is describing the last days. He says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So John was thinking back to Jesus' teaching, and he's looking out over the landscape of the church and beginning to see evidences of the last days in the multiplication of, of false Christs. And so now ask yourself, if that was John's experience, if he saw this as a sign of the end, then how much more should we be on alert now? Whew. That's why I said earlier, we live in a time of urgency, church. There is a danger on the horizon, and God wants to protect us from it. But Satan uses all kinds of things to crowd out that horizon, our view of that horizon. Last week during the liturgy, Will said something really profound that I wrote down. He said, the distracting stuff on our horizons has a way of eclipsing the creator. So like the tyranny of the urgent right in front of our faces often I think eclipses the danger and importance of that final hour. We can't see past all our stuff to realize there's something bigger and better coming. The last day in that instance doesn't matter so much as making a buck on this day. But that's unwise, church. Short-sighted. Please don't shrug at this teaching today. It is a hard and sharp word for all of us. John's view of the end times here seems to be that there is a singular Antichrist coming, but that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. And that's kind of what he's after here in this text, that spirit of Antichrist. And that spirit of Antichrist manifests itself in many lesser, in the form of many lesser antichrists. You can see that in verse 18. And then in verse 19, you can tell that those lesser antichrists, these guys, these men and women, have left the church that John is writing this letter to. And how they're described here is super sobering. And here's why. Looks can be deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. John says in verses 18 and 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So these were people in the church. They look like me, look like you. 
They were us. They looked like us. They sung like us. They attended like us, probably went to C group like us. We need to be really careful because just because the salt tea has the same look, the same sound, and the same smell does not guarantee that it is, in fact, sweet tea. The truth is on the tongue. What does it taste like? In the same way, just because you are among us now does not necessarily mean that in the end you will stay with us. Like with the tea, the truth will be on your tongue. The truth is revealed in what your confession is now and what it will be tomorrow and the next day and the next day. The truth is in your confession. These verses right here clarify you what your core confession must be to gain entrance into this eternal life, as John describes it. So number three here, confessions reveal reality. Confessions reveal reality. And we see two things here. True confessions reveal anointing. False confessions reveal deception. Let's start first with these false confessions. Here's what the Antichrists were denying. First, that Jesus was the Christ. Who is the liar in verse 22? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, I don't think these guys were necessarily denying that a Messiah was coming. Here's what they were denying. They were denying that Jesus was the Messiah. Not that a Messiah was coming, but that it was him. And their main hang-up with, uh, with, with agreeing with the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, they couldn't get past the fact that God had become a human being. They couldn't get their minds wrapped around this reality, and so they denied it. It's the second thing, a nuance here. They denied that the Christ would come in the flesh. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that denies this is not from God. So John's opponents were denying the incarnation, that God became man or would really become human, cloaked in flesh like this. Do you see what the crux was for them? A Messiah come in the flesh. But an enfleshed Messiah is at the very core of our faith. We need to hold to this as Christians unflinchingly. And that's at the core of our faith for at least two reasons. A historical human Christ means that truth is not a matter of experience, but a matter of history. In other words, we don't get to make this up as we go. We have a fixed, objective, historical faith, not a changing experiential faith. There's a lot of settledness that can come there. Second, the fusion of God plus man is central to the potency of Jesus' death. If Jesus was less than a man, he couldn't be our substitute. He hadn't faced what we face. He hadn't undergone the same kind of temptations that we have and we do. Also, if Jesus was less than God, he would be incapable of absorbing the wrath through the sins of the world. His shoulders wouldn't be broad enough if he was not God. John understood that losing this as a central core of our doctrine of an enfleshed Messiah would guarantee the demise of the church. Jesus was fully human and fully God, both. To believe anything less is to align yourself with Antichrist. So John is very concerned that we be alert to this deceit. 
how do we prevent ourselves from fooling ourselves? I think the author of Hebrews has a helpful word here. Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Unbelieving of what? Well, in verse 24, John would say, unbelieving of what you have heard from the beginning, the truth of this word, this book. Some of those people in John's church had failed to take this warning seriously. I hope you won't this morning, please. There's a real danger of each of us, for each of us to fall into a rut of looking the part without actually being the part. The author of Hebrews continues, and he employs, I think, the same sort of urgency that John does. And he gives us a tool, I think, here to help us avoid from falling into the trap that these antichrists did in John's church. He goes on to say, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then listen to this urgency the author of Hebrews brings out. He says, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The implication is don't wait till tomorrow or the next day. Don't think there's just going to be enough time for you to live it up for as long as you want. And then right at the very end, you're going to swoop in and confess and repent. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't think you have more time because you might not. It's the last hour. Or it might be your last hour. None of us know. In other words, like we're fond of saying around here, if we want to go far, we have to go together. With urgency, we must go together. That's what Hebrews said. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. This is why church membership is so vital to us here at Trinity. We've got a class coming up in about a month. We strongly encourage you, if you're not a member yet, to join us for that. If you've been to a class and haven't signed the dotted line yet, please do. Membership is so vital, and it's boots on the ground practical for us here at this church. So let me urge you, if you are a member and you look around and you see empty spots that used to be filled by some who have kind of just wandered off, if you notice missing souls, that's an emergency, church. It's an emergency. Eternal souls are on the line. Now, I'm not talking about people who have transitioned to other churches. We know Trinity is not for everyone. We have all kinds of warts and faults and failures. I am chief on the list of knowing them all. Trust me. But I'm talking about people who have ghosted Jesus himself who are being deceived right now that Jesus isn't actually Lord of their life, that he doesn't actually say, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. They need to remember and be reminded by us, while it is today, that all of their life comes under the Lordship of Christ. Our hearts should break for them, church. Throughout a lifeline with a text or a phone call, get over the awkward. One day when you're drifting, you're going to want someone to do the same for you, and I will too. Please, don't feel too awkward about calling me or texting me if I'm wandering off. Please, please. It's not a game. Flip through your membership directory and plan a strategy. We don't print those as fodder for your fire pits in the fall, okay? They're practical working documents, functional documents to help us all help each other make it to the end. If we want to go far, we have to go together. Well, confessions reveal reality. Antichrists deny that Jesus is God. They, they deny his lordship. 
And John contrasts those left in the church with the Antichrist. He's like, they went out from among us, but, and look at verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge, and you, you all have knowledge. Anointing is how we know if we are the real thing or not. I said earlier that the truth is on the tongue. It's on our tongues. It's our confession. Let's look at, how, let's look at this anointing, and then I'll show you what I mean by that truth being on the tongue. True confessions reveal anointing. True confessions reveal anointing. Well, what is this anointing? I mean, I get Antichrist's anointing in the last hour in one sermon. I got to do it in 30 minutes, so hang on here. Uh, in the Greek, it's just something that is rubbed on. An anointing is something that is rubbed on. An application of something, often throughout the scriptures, it's oil. Okay, here, it's not oil that's being applied. What is being applied and who is doing the applying? Trust me, it's not as spooky as it sounds, okay? Verse 20, he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. So believers have been anointed by the Holy One. Well, who's that? The Holy One is Jesus. I think that because that's what he is called in John's other writings. You don't have to flip there, but in John 6, 69, Jesus is called the Holy One of God. In Revelation 3, 7, John calls Jesus the Holy One. And this pattern is carried on uh, by other New Testament authors as well. In Mark 1, in Acts 3, in Acts 13, did you know that the very word Christ actually means anointed? Jesus Christ, like Christ is not his last name. Christ means anointed. Jesus, the anointed one. So I think if we can find out what Jesus was anointed with, we can gain a pretty good understanding of what Jesus anoints us with. The Spirit, this is what Luke 4 says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. That's a quote from Jesus. So who is Jesus appointed, uh, anointed by here? The Spirit, yeah. In Acts 10, God anointed Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. What is Jesus anointed with there? For the recording, say it out loud. Yeah, there it is, the Holy Spirit. So every believer has come into contact with Jesus by faith. And what happens when this, like, this contact is made? The oil of the Holy Spirit rubs off on us, as it were. And what does that matter? What is the effect of this anointing? Verse 20, verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One, by Jesus, and you have all knowledge because of the Spirit. So our knowing God's truth is the result of our anointing from God's Spirit. Our knowing God's truth is the result of our anointing from God's Spirit. The Spirit's anointing on our lives ought to be like the man in John 9. You can follow along on screen. He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. So knowing the truth and seeing reality is a result of the anointing of the Holy Spirit by the Holy One, by Jesus. That is our only hope in life and death. What is plain here is that Without the Holy Spirit, we would not know the truth. Without the Holy Spirit, you would not know the truth. It should spark joy in your hearts when you sing of the gospel. Knowing the truth about Christ is a gift of the Holy Spirit. If you this morning, if you know and you love and you believe Jesus, it's not because you're smarter than the next guy. No, it is the gift of God. You can't boast in any of your knowledge. The Holy Spirit anointed you. 
You've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And look at the result. Look at down at verse 27. The Holy Spirit, which you received from God, abides in you, and so you have no need that anyone should teach you. I don't think this means that you need to fire me. At least I hope it doesn't. I think it means you don't need men or women who claim to have received new information about Jesus beyond the truth written down from the beginning. You don't need anyone to teach you anything new. It's all right here. And this isn't a new concept in the scriptures. All the way back in the Old Testament, Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. Do not add to his words, lest you be found a liar. Same concept. John is telling us that we have enough revelation in what was heard from the beginning. He does not want to send us off in a pursuit of something spooky and new, but rather something old. Look up at uh, chapter 2, verse 7. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment, which you, have had, which you had from the beginning. In other words, hear this. We don't need any new revelation, and none is coming. What we need now, and will always need, is the original apostolic teaching about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's it. The Holy Spirit will never expand upon the apostolic teaching of Jesus. So here's a good measuring stick for you. Your experience, and I do think it's an experience, your experience of God's Spirit will agree with God's Word or it is not God's Spirit. Okay? This is like a rule of life for the Christian. Your experience of God's Spirit will agree with God's Word or it is not God's Spirit. The Word tests the spirits. We'll see that in chapter 4 when we get there. This is why we end up rejecting the teaching of cults like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, not because we can boast of superior revelations from the Spirit, but because their claims do not square with that which we have heard from the beginning. Like one author has said so succinctly, the work of the Holy Spirit does not take us beyond the teaching of the apostles. It helps us to accept and abide in that teaching. It helps us grow in our understanding of that teaching. It strengthens our power to practice that teaching. It increases our confidence in the truth of that teaching. But it does not change the teaching. It does not expand on the teaching. The anointing of the Holy Spirit keeps you from believing the lie that Jesus is not God's anointed one. It keeps you from believing the lie that he doesn't deserve rights over every last inch of your life. Your wallet, your sexuality, your marriage, your work ethic, your drinking habits, your attitudes. Okay, let's say that you've passed the test so far, okay? You agree that there's urgency. The best you can tell, your looks aren't deceiving. You're doing your best to obey the word of God. And your confession is true to what the word says. So far, you are legit sweet tea. No need to spit you out this morning. If that's the case, praise God for that. Amen. But how can we guarantee that one day, one year, 50 years from now, we'll still be holding to this same truth, clinging to it with all our lives? How do we immunize our lives, ourselves from lies, so that they bounce off us without affecting us? Because the lies are coming. The darts of the evil one are coming. We need to be immunized from those darts. So in this text, there are only two commands throughout the whole text. One is in verse 24. You can see it. Let what you heard from the beginning 
abide in you. And the other is in verse 27 at the end. Abide in him. Let the word abide in you, and you abide in the spirit. Finally today, abiding safeguards our souls. Abiding safeguards our souls. So I think probably the most important thing to focus on in this complicated passage this morning is the duo of safeguards here that protect us from lies and keep us in the truth. Safeguard one, word remembrance. Safeguard two, spirit dependence. Word remembrance, spirit dependence. Number one, word remembrance. Abiding in God's written word protects us from lies. Look at verse 24. It's on screen. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Then in verse 27, John gets back to this anointing idea. And I think what's crucial to notice for us this morning is that just as he says in verse 24 that the truth must abide in you to protect you, to immunize you, he also said that the Spirit, the anointing, must abide in us to protect us as well. You need the Word. You need the Spirit. So Spirit dependence. God's abiding Spirit protects us from lies. Verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and his anointing teaches you about everything. And it's true, and there's no lie. Truth and spirit, we need both. We must abide in both, and both must abide in us. Do you want immunity from the assault of the world? The lies it whispers about how embarrassing your faith is, how backwards it is, how extinct it is how unloving it is. If you want immunity, take a bath in this book every day and beg the Spirit to help you understand it, believe it, and then hold fast to it. So this leads us to the big idea of the text. Urgently safeguard your soul with word and spirit. It's that simple. Urgently safeguard your soul with word and spirit. Urgently safeguard your souls because you don't want to be said of you what was said about the people in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If you don't want that to be your story, urgently safeguard your soul with word and spirit dependence. So can you swallow this text in its entirety with belief and joy? Can you cede control to the God-man, Jesus Christ? If so, You've been anointed by Jesus with the Spirit. You've passed the test, and by God's grace, you're in the family. You have so much to look forward to. Now, stay in the family by abiding. Keep guarding yourself from the spirit of Antichrist. Love the Word. Live the Word. Sing the Word. Pray the Word. Memorize the Word. And before every jot and tittle of its truth, submit yourself to whatever the Spirit is calling you to do through the Word. Urgently safeguard your soul with Word and Spirit. We're going to pray now. Trevor's going to come up and pray these truths into our lives by God's grace.